news as hot as chili pepper spray. This week, Council was forced to listen to a lot of useless talk about spicy things. Plus, the mansion tax might not be in the cards for Edmonton. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 208. And with the conclusion of Chinatown Dining Week, Mac, I feel like I don't have anything to say off the top. If only there was a way that I could know what was happening at any given point in time. Well, I might have a solution for you. You could subscribe to Taproot, you could read The Pulse, and you could read our roundups. And if you subscribe to Taproot, you'll also get all of the other great things that we send out to people, including you know this episode and, uh, and Speaking Municipally episodes, but also sometimes we ask for input. And this week, we've actually been looking for some input on the idea of an events calendar for Edmonton. I don't know about you, Troy, but we hear a lot from our readers that, how do I find out about events, or I found out about an event that I might be interested in, but it happened already. It's too late. We think we can maybe do something about that. You know, caveat, caveat, caveat. Most event calendars suck and don't actually solve the problem, but, you know, we think we have a way to, to, to address that. Anyway, we're looking for some feedback, some input from people. So we'll put the survey link in the show notes, and if you feel compelled to tell us what you think about event calendars, we'd be very grateful. Now, this might be a MacMail deep cut here, but this sounds a little bit similar to Share Edmonton. Yeah, this is a website I built more than a decade, or my goodness, we're getting on... <laughs> 15 years or something ago. And it was an events calendar. It was more than that. It would try to be this aggregator for all kinds of local information. And there's a few key things that I learned through that process that I think will make, you know, anything Taproot might do here around events much, much better. So very quickly, one of them is like, I tried to include literally everything in that event calendar. It was way too noisy. One of the things that Taproot does really well, as you'll know, is curation. I think that'll be really critical for any event calendar to be successful. But secondly, uh, Sheridan was a thing that nobody knew about. So I had to get people to find out about it and then have them go there. And, you know, getting people to make a habit of a new website is difficult. Um, Taproot already has, of course, pretty good distribution, thousands of readers and subscribers. So if we do an event calendar, it's going to have a, a, a little bit more legs right off the start. So there's a few, few few more reasons, but those are a couple that make us think like we might be able to do something different this time. We don't do anything different at the start of each episode, though. We do the rapid fire segment. This week, a local Edmonton man showed up at Edmonton City Council eating a chili pepper in order to prove that climate change is not a huge issue. After the public and council's time was wasted, council will now be debating a new policy to restrict speakers that explicitly waste council's time. This would include comedians, the 30 speakers at public hearings sharing the same speaking notes and points, and the Downtown Recovery Coalition. Winter Bike to Work Day was this morning, with the city inviting all four of the winter cyclists in the city to stop by the lamppost near the high-level bridge and enjoy some complimentary drinks and snacks with their complimentary roadway space paid for by hard-working drivers and their gas tax money. The Edmonton police is requesting a $17 million budget increase through a new service package presented to Edmonton City Council. The service package, they say, is needed to support emerging priorities like setting up roadblocks and checkpoints to enforce citizen containment within 15-minute communities. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. This episode is brought to you by the Well-Endowed Podcast from the Edmonton Community Foundation. It's hosted and produced by Andrew Paul and Lisa Pruden, and it explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The ECF helps people create endowment funds, and the podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. Episode 140 looks at how Edmonton's food bank, the very first food bank to open in Canada, goes beyond food to support community members. 
You can find The Well Endowed Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or at thewellendowedpodcast.com. We're not going to be the first people to cover this next story this week, Mac, and indeed every media outlet covered it. Uh, But my hope is we will be the last to ever talk about this ever again. And that's the chili pepper guy at Edmonton City Council. You know, I go through the agendas every single week. We produce a thing for Taproot called On the Agenda. Here's what's coming up. And when I saw this come up during the week, I was like, there was nothing on the agenda about climate change. What is going on here? So, Troy, why randomly did we have a comedian, and I'm using air quotes here, uh, show up at city council to eat a chili pepper. A guy self-identifying as a comedian uh, showed up at Edmonton City Council. He ate a chili pepper, making the joke that even though the chili pepper was heating up, it's not the end of the world, and saying this means climate change is not a big deal. This was presented through the frame of an obviously satirical series of comments about how we're not supporting our oil and gas workers enough and how we need to give more support to those boys in the patch. Now, saying this quickly and succinctly in the 20 seconds that I did, it actually sounds kind of funny, right? On the crux of it, this is a silly waste of time, but an okay funny joke. The execution of this was absolutely trash. Not funny at all. The guy completely bungled the execution. Like you said, there was nothing about climate change on the agenda. He even mentioned in his comments about how he was searching through agenda items to find one to present to. Uh, He clearly just wanted to eat a chili pepper in front of Edmonton City Council and waste everyone's time. And Mac, I'm not a stranger to going in front of Edmonton City Council and making jokes. I actually find if you're legitimately presenting to council, including a couple jokes and making counselors laugh, really mm-hmm. does help get your point across. Yeah. They're there for 12 hours. They're so bored. They want a reprieve. A reprieve should not be taxing. A reprieve should not make you want to go back to hearing about assessment and taxation for another seven hours. <laughs> and yet every counselor was averting their eyes, just saying, when can this be over? Guy, you're not succeeding. Move on. And media, <laughs> media as well. Stop glorifying this. We get that Parks and Rec is funny. Parks and Rec was a funny show. This would be a funny bit on Parks and Rec, but this guy was not funny. Let's not give him credit for being so. When counselor Sarah Hamilton offers to help you get to the punchline, you might want to go back to the drawing board. The bravery of counselor Sarah Hamilton, you know, having um, undermined counsel uh, quite on the regular for the past couple of weeks mm-hmm. to tweet about wasting counsel's time and uh, upending <laughs> council meetings. Absolutely. Incredibly brave. Kudos to her for really standing up and putting on that cognitive dissonance shield. Totally. Uh, props to you, counselor Hamilton. You mentioned that this uh, self-identified comedian said he had to search through agenda items to find something climate related and failed to do that. Is that, do you think, a commentary on how infrequently climate change, an ongoing crisis, actually comes up before city council? That's a funny joke to make, Mac. You've identified another lane of comedy he could have gone for. <laughs> let me just say quickly, this comedian could have totally made this a lot more funny. Like, let's just workshop his joke a little bit, Mac. <laughs> First, the satirical Beaverton article, mm, no one thinks about the oil patch. Yeah kind of tired. Totally. What if instead he went there with the climate change isn't a big deal thing, ate the pepper, and when it started heating up, he pivoted and he's like, oh, geez, climate change is real. I'm dying. The world is dying. Let's act about this. That could be funny and meaningful at the same time. This guy is not a comedian. I'm a podcaster who writes three bad jokes a week that people tell me to cut from the episode. And yet I'm still funnier than this guy. 
that's that's my claim here, Mac. And that's all I'll say on it. We love your jokes, Troy. Keep it up. Let's talk about some real stuff this week. Uh, and the first, we won't spend too much time on this, but there was a report that's coming up in the next couple weeks about 102 Avenue. And this is what we've been keeping an eye on, the closure of the vehicle space to make 102 Ave a pedestrianized corridor along the new Valley Line LRT. This was, of course, supposed to happen several months ago when the train opened. The train did not, in fact, open. So the road has been in this sort of barrierized no man's land. We're uncertain if it's opened or closed, if there's access, if there's no access. When it snowed, who's supposed to clear it? Is the bike lane even open? These were all questions that we had. And now there is a report coming forward for council's consideration to kind of solidify some of these questions. Yeah, so this will come up at public hearing on February 21st. This is in response to a motion that council made in June last year uh, about a pilot project for this closure. So 102nd Avenue between 103rd and 99th Street. They requested that administration bring forward the bylaw changes to do that and also work with the Downtown Business Association and other stakeholders to try and activate the space. This report actually says that administration does not support the bylaw. So uh, administration, at least, doesn't want to see this go forward. It can, however, start as soon as it passes third reading at city council, and it will expire a year after that date. So the longer this goes on, the more in limbo that stretch of road is going to be. But there's a very real chance that after February 21st, we could have uh, a one-year pilot. Or indeed a road opened if administration convinces council not to support this bylaw. A brief refresher of the last time this came up at a council, it is not a shocker to see administration attempt to sabotage this thing because they tried to do it at council. Uh, Some of the choice quotes when this came up for council debate before was uh, Adam Laughlin getting up in front of council and saying, we need the traffic lane open because cars will protect pedestrians from the train, Um, (laughs) which is the most absurd line of thinking I can think of. Uh, So we will be covering this in the next couple of weeks, but I wanted to highlight it because just like the last time we debated this, this is something that we're going to need proactivity from both counselors and the community to avoid administrative sabotage And this report is rife with administrative sabotage because like I talked about at the top, it's not clear going down there whether the road is open or closed, whether the bike lane is open or closed. There's still barriers everywhere. That I have to move frequently because they've been moved because, you know, what happens is you get sort of maintenance people that come in there, they move the barricades, they drive away and they don't put them back. And then cars just drive through there. It's crazy. Yeah. uh, So... I wasn't even certain if I was allowed to cycle through that area because we've never really gotten a solid answer of does the city control the space or does TransEd still control the space because the train is closed. Uh, There's a subheading in this report coming to city council called space activation. And it says interest from community stakeholders to activate the space has been limited and there have been no formal events or activations of any kind as of January 2023. So they're saying... There have been no formal activations of the space with barricades saying keep out, some of which until recently said keep out or we will prosecute you for trespassing. (laughs) And no one's activated that space. Shocker. <laughs> Shocker. Also in the middle of winter with lots of snow and all kinds of other contributing factors there. My favorite part of this report, Troy, is the decline in foot traffic and business activity in this area has contributed to an unsafe environment. Keeping the lane open to vehicles would create more natural surveillance and likely improve safety with more eyes on the area. 
yeah, no, hard no. This <laughs> vehicles will make it so much more unsafe than it currently is. I would like to remind city administration about the 100 crosswalks that we are upgrading because of the lack of safety that we needed to expedite because uh, of demand from across the city. Roads without cars aren't unsafe. You don't need crosswalks if the road doesn't have cars. We will definitely follow this over the next couple of weeks as it comes forward. But Mac, sometimes I just read the agendas and <laughs> it gets me going. If you're as upset about the report as Troy is, you know, might be a good opportunity to let your counselor know about it in advance of that public hearing. That's coming up in the next couple of weeks. But council did hear this week an update about homelessness and more specifically a homelessness count from uh, Homeward Trust. Yeah, there was a verbal report. Dr. Chris Sakora, who's the chief medical officer of health for the uh, Edmonton Zone, was at city council. We heard a lot from Dr. Sakora through the pandemic, but not recently so much. But he came to give an update on homelessness and the, the impact that a lack of housing has on health, actually. So one of the bits of information we got is, as you say, an update on the homeless count. Homeward Trust says that as of this week, there were more than 2,800 homeless people in Edmonton, and about a third of those people are sleeping outdoors. About half were maybe provisionally accommodated, which means it's temporary or is unsafe housing that they're in. But the other thing that we heard about, and, and the, the primary reason that Dr. Sikora was there, was to talk about how having housing can lead to a really significant drop in both emergency room visits and addictions and mental health related EMS events, which you know should be uh, a significant focus for all kinds of policymakers, but in this case, city council. What can they do to, you know, increase the security and availability of housing? Not just because people have dignity, deserve dignity in a, in a house and a roof over their head, but because it can also have a real dramatic impact on on our health system. Mag, not to sort of undersell or make light of this, but did he present any new information that we haven't heard constantly for the past eight years? I mean, this is a, this is a thing we've heard from uh, experts in this field, as you point out. So that's not really new. He did have some relatively updated information, some recent studies that were done at the University of Alberta, for example, that found, you know, in the 2019 to the early part of the pandemic, homeless people in Edmonton made 5,800 visits to the emergency room and the causes for this were poisonings, falls, environmental factors like cold and violence. So there was some new evidence to support the idea that if these people were housed, if they had stable housing, that that could have a, a material impact on their health. But as you say, this information is not really new to anyone who's been paying attention. And Councillor Karen Tang kind of picked up on that and said, in the past year and a half, we've been putting disproportionate attention on the public safety aspect of things. So criminalizing homelessness and poverty and she's hoping that this conversation at committee will maybe shift the conversation a little bit to what are the other solutions that we should be putting in place here. Of course, I think it is not a surprise to anyone on city council that uh, housing is an appropriate and effective measure. Uh, we hear council talk about it all the time. This report was approved by committee 4.0 and will go to council, at which point council will likely accept it for information. But Council has built housing. There was a lot of acrimony just a couple of years ago when council had built housing and the units sat empty because the province wouldn't fund the supportive aspect of the housing. We have Chief Dale McPhee who, when asked questions about housing, he oftentimes de-emphasizes the housing aspect. He controls a disproportionate amount of the city budget mm -hmm. uh, through the police commission. So I'm hopeful that uh, we will see something positive of this and that we will see more housing built and 
homelessness decrease and disorder decrease because of it. But, you know, I have watched history and nothing (laughs) about our past indicates to me that anything will change based on this report. No, not based on this report, potentially, depending on what happens in the upcoming provincial election. But uh, that remains to be seen. Council did receive this for information, and then they passed a follow-up motion, basically asking for Dr. Scor's office to provide a report on deaths related to unhoused populations. So this information was mainly about its impact on the healthcare system and emergency events. They want to get more information about the deaths of dealing with houselessness. And then they also asked AHS to provide a report on mental health and addiction issues within the city. So we should uh, have that come back to committee at some point with some more information about um, that ongoing crisis as well. I mentioned Chief Dale McPhee and his I won't call it lack of support for housing, but his less than full-throated support of housing as a solution. Because often with the Edmonton Police Service, we find discussions tend to relate to things that would increase their budget and don't, through an evidence-based process, actually have provable impacts on safety improvements. And I think there was no better microcosm of that than the discussion this week where EPS came to Edmonton City Council requesting a series of bylaw changes related to pepper spray and bear spray, um, more specifically, to further restrict access to pepper spray on Edmonton streets. Yeah, are you not a little bit shocked that they didn't ask for like a budget service package to deal with pepper spray incidents and bear spray incidents? Like that they went and requested bylaw changes is kind of shocking to me. I think the better way is to request the bylaw change. And then once the bylaw comes into effect, they say, well, you have this new bylaw that has so much more arduous burden put on us. We need budget to do what you asked. Yeah, that's probably true. Well, this report said that, you know, incidents of uh, of pepper spray or bear spray, so this is oleoresin capsicum is the scientific name, I suppose, of the spray, has been trending up since 2015. And the report points out that a concerning percentage, greater than 60%, are within 100 meters of a bus stop. Uh, So there's a lot of these incidences, apparently, in the last six years. And as a first step, I suppose, yeah, the police think that some sort of nuisance type offense for negligent use in public spaces and then also some rules for businesses who sell this they might have to say record who buys the spray could be some changes that might you know help them start to address this and in a vacuum a lot of this sounds okay perhaps you don't want to get pepper sprayed at a bus stop i mm-hmm. i can get behind that yeah this of course all flies in the face and councillor michael jans brought this up in the discussion when i was listening at city council The Solicitor General of Alberta wrote to the Attorney General of Canada asking for fewer restrictions on pepper spray because, he said, Edmontonians should all carry pepper spray for safety. To see the EPS talk about pepper spray as a need to restrict with such a stark disconnect at the provincial level, Councilor Michael Jans asked the police service, are you disagreeing with the Solicitor General? And... Mm -hmm. To what extent uh, do you support the Solicitor General's comments? And he couldn't seem to get a yes or no answer. There was a little bit of a kerfuffle with Councillor Tim Cartmel trying to rule the question out of order, though in my read, it seemed pretty in order. Yeah. And we didn't really get an answer other than some hemming and hawing and then moving on. It all seemed to me like the EPS was coming forward with this issue that wasn't really an issue seemingly coming out of nowhere. Uh, We're talking about safety and security on LRT in Chinatown 
and in many ways that are top of mind, and this doesn't really have anything to do with that, it seemed to me like an EPS attempt to change the channel that only ended up with a bit of an own goal on them. Yeah, you would hope that the justice leaders in our province and community could have a little bit more consistency in terms of what they recommend go forward. The committee just received this for information, so that means there will be some draft bylaw changes that come back at some point that council would need to review and approve. So this, unfortunately, will not be the last time we hear about pepper spray at city council. Yeah, of course, when the legislators and those that are enforcing the legislation don't quite agree on what the rules are, that can lead to a lot of jurisdictional uncertainty. And I think we might see a little bit of that coming up next week with the report from Councillor Michael Jans's mansion tax coming back. Uh, You'll recall this is a proposal from Councillor Michael Jans that would add a new assessment subclass for properties that are valued over $1 million. Those properties might pay a higher property tax rate in a sort of tax the rich, pay your share type scheme. The report uh, was published this week, and there was some coverage in CBC and other outlets, essentially saying that the city has no legal jurisdiction to implement such a tax. Or at least that they're concerned about potential legal issues. I have to imagine they're worried that all of the people who have houses greater than a million dollars in value are going to band together and sue them for discrimination or something if they, you know, go and, uh, and create a new subclass for them. So, The report kind of dances around this, right, in a few different ways, right? I mean, the report is not really about the million dollars. It's more that administration was asked to look into options for making municipal property taxes more progressive. And throughout the report, the administration kind of gives some input about how it could do that, but also at the same time seems to suggest that it couldn't actually make it more progressive. Yeah, there was one line in this report that really stood out to me, uh, and it said, quote, As there is no legislative flexibility in the assessment of properties, setting different tax rates for property classes and subclasses is the primary tool available for the city to address property tax incidences. Mac, when I read this, I had to stop and think and stop and think again. And I came out of it saying, Did, was that a Councillor Tim Cartmel's statement? Because that didn't seem to say anything. (laughs) And if you read the rest of this paragraph, it it paraphrases the Municipal Government Act, which I know you went and looked at. But it explains that the city can come up with different subclasses. So it can set different tax rates for different property classes, subclasses of property. That sounds to me like legislative flexibility in the assessment of properties. (laughs) I'm not really sure why it's qualified as we don't have any legislative flexibility. As I said many times in the report, it says things like, you know, these are inadvisable due to legal risk or practical constraints, although the practical constraints aren't really spelled out beyond uh, people might complain. (laughs) (laughs) right? That seems to be the thing they're mostly concerned about. There doesn't seem to be a legal limit to what they can do here, right? Yeah. And indeed, the MGA is quite explicit about this. It's in section 297, subsection two. It says, quote, a council may by bylaw divide class one, those are residential classes, into subclasses on any basis it considers appropriate. And if the council does so, the assessor may assign one or more subclasses, two properties in class one, the residential class. Any basis it considers appropriate is not legal risk in my mind. That The word any <laughs> is pretty broad, I would say. <laughs> I think that's pretty expansive, yes. I mean, the other thing the report says is that there's a le- legal risk if they make an improper subclass. 
I'm not really sure what would be improper, given what you've just read to us. This all reminds me of the time I spent uh, discussing with city council and advocating with the Yegg Corps Zone for speed limit reductions in the city of Edmonton. And I recall the city lawyers saying in no uncertain terms when we were in council chambers that it would not be permitted under the Municipal Government Act for us to sign the edges of the city and say, within city limits, the maximum speed is 40 kilometers an hour unless otherwise posted. And Mac, I've mentioned this before, but if you recall, that is what we did. And that is what we've done. And that is what the city lawyer said is okay. I always pause when I hear the city lawyer say, we can't do this because reasons when they don't quite itemize the reasons. City lawyers seem quite risk averse, and they also do work for the city. And as we talked about with the 102 Ave closure, Mac, I wouldn't be shocked if there was a lawyer suddenly saying something like, well, we can't do this for legal risks. It is very, very easy to say some nebulous legal risks because, as is the case with the justice system, everything you do, even things explicitly permitted by law, do contain an element of legal risk. A judge can always rule against you for extenuating circumstances, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't pursue things that are explicitly permitted by the Municipal Government Act. Yes. Now, uh, we are not lawyers, so of course you and I are not up to speed on you know, case law related to this. Yeah, but Mac, I'm a podcaster. (laughs) I do believe the report says there's very limited legal precedent for different subclasses, but it's possible that it's perfectly allowed under the MGA and that there's, you know, case law out there that would maybe suggest that it's not as easy to do as it might at first seem. But we don't know because the attachment that has detail about the legal requirements for these new subclasses is recommended to be kept private. And so it hasn't been released. So we don't know. But what's not private, and just last thing on this, I think we should just maybe share the numbers, right? Because one of the questions that I had when I heard about this mansion tax originally is, well, how many houses are there? And it turns out we have a number now. So there are more than 4,800 properties in Edmonton that were assessed at a million dollars of uh, value or greater. And so what that works out to, if uh, you know, if the tax went ahead and there was a 10% higher tax, let's say, for those properties, that means everybody else's taxes, all the people who have houses valued less than that, their taxes could go down by 0.3%, which is not insignificant, actually. You know, it's much smaller uh, of a decrease if we only look at houses worth $2 million or $3 million. But uh, I thought it was interesting we finally got some numbers, too, to see just how many uh, properties might be affected by this. And of course, this is not necessarily about reducing the tax burden for those uh, with lower value properties, though certainly that is a positive uh, impact. This is more, in my mind, about a recognition that we've chosen progressive taxation systems all over Canada, and to an extent even within Alberta. We love our flat tax, but we do have a slightly progressive system because that is more just, that is more equitable. We understand the benefits of progressive taxation and the benefits they have on people who are the most in need of financial assistance. Property tax is a very regressive system overall. Granted, sure, the amount you pay does scale with the value of your property, but so too do income taxes, and yet income taxes are progressive. So I think laying the groundwork for making this taxation system more equitable, more progressive, that does have value. Does it mean that later we might pursue things like wealth taxes, like uh, land taxes, that incent development and bringing the value of your entire community up. Yeah, these are all things that we can pursue. But this, in my mind, is a first step to that. 
And that's where the great value comes in, not necessarily on the $5.3 million of tax shift that we would have. Yeah, 100%. This is about getting this conversation going, making it okay for counselors to ask these questions and for, you know, causing the administration to really dig into it and, and actually see what's possible. And in Edmonton, anything is possible, especially if you're jobber, because jobber is a little bit of the unsung hero. You talk to someone on the street about, think of an Edmonton company that's achieved success, especially in the tech space, and you're likely to hear BioWare, the game company, or you might hear until a couple of weeks ago, DeepMind as perhaps an example. But very rarely, almost inexplicably, do you hear about Jobber, who just closed $100 million US of Series D funding this week. Yeah, this is a huge round of investment for Jobber. It comes at a time when all kinds of tech companies are doing layoffs. So it's a really good vote of confidence in this homegrown company. And it's, I think, a recognition of the runway that they've got. And I mean, certainly of the great company that um, Sam Pilar and Forrest Eisler, the co-founders, have built based mainly here in Edmonton, um, but also the runway they've got. They think there's you know, 6.2, more than 6 million businesses in North America that could be using Jobber. So Jobber makes software for home service businesses. So the people that might come and fix your furnace or come and wash your windows or, or those kinds of things, cut your lawn, paint your garage door, they make the software that can help those businesses run more efficiently because a large number of them are still operated on notebooks and paper and post-it notes and things like that. And so Jobber makes all of that you know, much more efficient. And maybe that's partly why we've not heard as much about Jobber because they're not so consumer facing as say Bioware was where they're making the games that, you know, people are, are actually playing or, you know, even Shopify, which um, also makes software for other businesses, but is a little bit more connected to the end user, to the customer. Like you use the Shopify app, for example, you see Shopify when you buy something. Jobber is much more, you know, behind the scenes for a lot of people. And so maybe that's part of, a part of what it is. The other thing I suppose is that Bioware, of course, had an exit. They got bought. They got their money out and lots of people were made very rich. Raising money like this is a great thing for Jobber, but it's also money that investors hope to get out at some point, right? So they've still got a lot of work to do to, you know, turn the 100, 100, 200 million that they've now received roughly in total of investment into a return for those investors. And the more you raise, the more the return has to be, right? So if Jobber gets to that point, they go public or they have a big sale or something like that, maybe they'll become a little bit more of a household name. But even still, in the meantime, pretty darn cool that a company like this that has had such an impact and has got such runway is coming right from Edmonton. And of course, as a software developer who, you know, keeps appraised of the job opportunities that might come across my desk, Jobber is there all the time. It's very exciting to see a company growing right here because I don't want to move to San Francisco. But, you know, opportunities wise, that's where the opportunities are in software and in tech. And the University of Alberta has a really nice computing science program. We have this tech and innovation ecosystem in Edmonton, it's nice to see the ability to stay here for your whole life in that tech and innovation ecosystem and get opportunities that rival those that you might see in Silicon Valley or in London or in Dublin or places like that. So I'm excited. I'm optimistic. And it's always nice to see an Edmonton-based success story. It's always great to have that thing to say, did you know they're from Edmonton? And people are like, no, I didn't. Well, they are. Two guys who met for coffee used Remedy as their early office space 
and now they've turned it into you know this pretty pretty impressive large company customers across 50 different industries dozens of countries more than 13 billion in in revenue on you know on behalf of their customers like it's really impressive this podcast isn't sponsored by jobber but you're welcome to <laughs> reach out uh, we started this podcast in a coffee shop as well so like the parallels here uncanny reach out uncanny. to us yeah totally but of course we do have actual ads to read from the alberta podcast network and this episode is brought to you by edmonton public schools which is entering open house season you, you know it you love it get ready to take the guesswork out of choosing a school go to edmonton public schools open house meet the staff and ask your questions to learn about their schools and programs explore your options and find the school that feels right Find event dates and learn how to make the most out of your visit at openhouse.epsb.ca. Know before you go and feel confident and excited when you get there. Well, Mac, that's all for this week. (laughs) (laughs) See, the listener doesn't know that we edit out the awkward silence after I say that's all for this week and expect you to just come up with something (laughs) off the cuff. Yeah, that's it, Troy. A spicy week in the books. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're speaking municipally. municipally.